You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the podcast. Today, we're talking about how the Bible talks about sin, and we have Gary Anderson with us. Tell us a little bit about Gary. Yeah, Gary is a great guy. He's a professor at at Notre Dame, which is pretty cool. And he's a professor of Old Testament, like Hebrew Bible, but he really focuses a lot on like Judaism and the rise of Christianity, which is a topic after my own heart. And and the topic today is sin. And, you know, we thought, Jared, we thought we'd do something on this topic because it's one of those things that if you stop and think about it, like frankly, most things in the Bible, like it's words we use all the time and take for granted. But what does it mean? Yeah, it's it's foundational to how we think about the world, frankly, for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's something we haven't really taken the time to stop and think about what we're saying and, and where did it come from. Yeah, what do we mean by sin? And what do we mean by God? Right. What do we mean by Messiah? What do we mean by forgiveness? What do we mean by crucifixion? You know, atoning for sins and things like that. These are all words that really people spend a lot of time thinking about and fleshing out. And Gary's one of those people. And, and you know, we talked about, I mean, the, the big thing is the metaphors that are used for talking about sin. And, you know, right away, there may be like a a glassy-eyed look from some of you, but don't. Just this is really important because, you know, as we talk about in the podcast, metaphors are how we communicate. You know, we're always – metaphors are like stand-ins for the real thing, so to speak. So, Well, I, I would challenge that a little bit in the sense that a lot of us think of it's just a metaphor. Yeah. The word just. Everything. But the reality is – yeah, I mean, the more we talked about this with Gary and the more we've reflected – metaphors are so foundational to how we actually think about the world. Right. I mean, in some ways, most everything we think about, the language you use is metaphor. Yeah. So, it's not just a metaphor. It is extremely important to how we actually behave in the mm-hmm. world, given some of these metaphors that we've inherited. And is, is, isn't it true that the metaphors we use are in part shaped by the world we live in, but also they shape how we see the world, right? Yeah. And so, if you have metaphors for like sin is a dirty, gross thing, you know, that's that's a metaphor. You know, if that's a metaphor, well, that will shape how we think about what God is like and how does God take care of sin and things like that. And, and you know, we talk about mainly two big metaphors that the Bible uses, which are different. They don't, they don't really come at it from the same angle. Well, and just to drive the point home, like you saying sin is a dirty thing. What do we mean? Like, is sin literally full of dirt? Dirt, right. <laughs> no, that's a metaphor. So, we can't get around it. Mm-hmm. And so, it's important to understand where we inherited these metaphors from, what's appropriate about them. And the thing about metaphors is they all come to an end somewhere. Yeah. So, when do we take it too far? How do we utilize it in our everyday life with other people? I mean, the, it's just a great conversation yeah. with Gary. And as we'll get into it, the two big metaphors are sin is a burden or a weight that we carry, or it is a debt that we owe. Those don't mean the same thing. Th- those conjure up different images, right? And yet they're both in the Bible. And they're both in the Bible. So, and 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 sort of getting those straight can... It's it's leading it's opening up a path for us to follow to think more deeply about the metaphors the Bible uses and why it uses those metaphors and the metaphors that we use. Right. You know, so stay tuned. That's what we're talking about, folks. Good. All right. Well, let's jump into this conversation with Gary. You could have a dictionary of Hebrew in Jesus' day and looked up the word for sin 
Well, there would be no sin generically understood. There would be the Hebrew word chov, which means debt. And you'd have to determine by virtue of context whether we're talking about debt conceived of as a sin or we're talking about a real material debt. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. All right. Well, so, um, so Gary, can you, can you define sin for us? Because you know what? That's, it's like defining God, define Messiah, define truth, define love, defining sin. I don't think that's an easy thing to do. So can you help us and maybe give us just a sketch, a, a working definition of what that word even means? Well, no, that's a $64,000 question. I think perhaps the easiest answer to give is that it's an offense either directly against God or indirectly against God, but directly against our neighbor. In the Bible, uh, sins of, you know, both characteristics, of course, are taken with, you know, utter seriousness. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, a, a lot of what you've talked about and written about has to do with the metaphors for sin. Let's get into that because, first of all, I mean, this may seem really elementary, but it's not. Like, what do you mean by talking about sin as metaphor? What are metaphors and and why do we even use metaphors to talk about sin at all? Well, we use metaphors, I think, generally when we're speaking about concepts that are so, we might want to say, abstract, that they're always in danger of di disappearing into nothingness. People uh, often tell the story that Einstein, when he came up with his theory of relativity, imagined him traveling, you know, on a cloud in the sky. I mean, he, he didn't just think it in pure, you know, unadulterated thought form. He had to have his own kind of mental image uh, to construe what he thought he was discovering. And I think the same is true with abstract theological notions. Sin is always, in certainly biblical texts, grounded in specific metaphors that writers use to give some uh, kind of color and realism to the notion. So sin is like a stain that adheres to your skin or your clothes or yeah, you think of all of the frequent New Yorker cartoons where individuals have their shoulders slumped. Therein, you know, you can obviously see, you know, a fit of depression of some sort. It looks like the whole world is weighing on them. So artists certainly understand that. Well, biblical writers did too, that sin was understood as a weight that if not dealt with would crush you. Or finally, the last sin I deal with in my book is sin is a debt that has to be repaid. All of these, you know, images uh, give, I think, this abstract idea, a uh, kind of tangible and um, visible face that we then can look at and discuss. So, before we go into each of those, because I think those are fascinating, 
ways of looking at or angles for sin. But what I'm hearing you say is sin, to, to say what is it literally versus what is it metaphorically is a question maybe we can't answer in that the Bible seems to always use it metaphorically. Would that be a fair way to say that? I think that's true. I mean, if you look at, you know, the great uh, patristic and med- medieval theologians, they always talk about, you know, the, the whole of theological speech as being this grand, what they would say, condescension of God, not condescending in a demeaning way, but it's etymological sense of God coming down to our level, uh, conveying truths about, you know, God's self, uh, in language that we can op- apprehend. Um, Thomas Aquinas was famous for referring to human beings as rational animals, really with an emphasis on the animals. I mean, we are animals, and we require, you know, kind of pictorial form to grasp intelligible notions. All right, so then let's go back to what you said earlier. These metaphors of sin as a, as a weight or a burden and sin as a debt. Is there any rhyme or reason to where those show up? Are they sort of like we move from one metaphor to the other chronologically, or how do those interact with each other? It's a great question, and it's actually, you know, often a misunderstanding of my book and what I'm trying to do. I think a lot of people think of metaphors along the lines of, you know, what a great poet or prose writer will think up to describe, you know, something unfathomable. And that's certainly one level at which metaphors work. Uh, Great writers are masters of, you know, incredible metaphors, Shakespeare uh, being a prime example of that. Uh, But the metaphors that I trace in my book are actually embedded in the language. They're not the choice of a virtuoso poet. So if you looked, for example, if you could have a dictionary of Hebrew in Jesus' day and looked up the word for sin, well, there would be no sin generically understood. There would be the Hebrew word chov, which means debt. Uh, and you'd have to determine by virtue of context whether we're talking about debt conceived of as a sin or we're talking about a real material debt. And the same phenomenon happens with the Bible, uh, with the idiom nasa avon, to bear a sin, to be guilty. That's, you know, that's just the common way of speaking about sin. Frequently, biblical, you know, readers will say, well, I don't see the image of sin as a weight that often in the Bible or the Old Testament. Well, the reason you don't is that the metaphor uh, to bear the weight of sin is just rendered sin in English, uh, so you don't see it. But if you were looking at the Hebrew, it's everywhere. And, and sin is rather abstract, right? And it doesn't really, like, what like what do you do with the sin? Like, what is it? And that's why I asked at the beginning, like, how do you define it? But sins are just sort of forgiven but that's, that's very abstract language, isn't it, as opposed to like a burden to be lifted? No, I think that's exactly right. It's also, you know, maybe analogous to why you have, you know, mourning rituals. Um, uh, when someone dies, you know, family, someone deeply beloved to you, you obviously grieve, but you need a structure for that grief. Uh, and it's the ritual, fasting, whatever, sackcloth and ashes that's going to uh, both help you experience the grief, but also manage it. And you might want to say that the metaphoric nature of sin also gives you a handle on it. You know, what is it? Uh, but also, how can I be relieved of it? 
Well, okay, let, let's get into some of these metaphors a little bit more deeply. Can What's a good Old Testament example, let's say, of thinking of sin as a burden or as a weight that you bear? Well, there's a number. Like I mentioned, it's the most frequent idiom in the entire Old Testament, so it's everywhere. And it's not always obvious when you read these texts that we're talking about a weight unless you're looking at the Hebrew. But for an English reader, the obvious example would be that of Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, in which the scapegoat is brought forward and the sins of Israel are offloaded on this animal, and this animal then carries them out into the wilderness. There could be no better image of sin as a weight than that. Okay, so what what lies behind, because I've always thought about, often thought of that metaphor, and I have to be honest, not completely understood it. So there's a weight on top of this scapegoat, or whatever that is, you know, whatever that word means, but... Um, What's the point you know, of going into the wilderness with this way? Is it just to remove it from the holy presence? Is or that the really community? The community? Or is there, is there something more to that? Well, I think, I mean, to go back to your just the basic question, we have, why this notion of weight? I think we just have to imagine, again, uh, I think of cartoons in The New Yorker of the person, you know, with his shoulders slumped, a kind of gray cloud over his head. We know something's wrong. Uh, people look like the the you know the burdens of the world are on their shoulders. That works fine in English. We understand that people are burdened by what they've done wrong. Once we understand it as a burden, then when someone we receive forgiveness from someone, uh, another person, for example, that burden lifts. Everyone's had that experience of the relief of someone graciously overlooking what we've done when we apologize. And if we were to continue that kind of cartoon metaphor, if it was being drawn, you'd see the individual stand up erect and the cloud over his head would be removed. Um, That's not metaphor. I think if we interviewed people on the street, (laughs) they would say they know that experience extremely well. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's that, you know, I think basic universal human experience Uh, that is, you know, in a sense, made into a form of ritual theater in Leviticus. In other words, if that's what happens, you know, so obviously, uh, when I confess, let's say, something I've done wrong to my spouse, and she overlooks it, and I go from, you know, being downtrodden to happy because this burden has been lifted from my shoulders, well, I can extend that to the sins and the offenses against God. They must be similar, they must, as a weight, accumulate somewhere and need to be removed. And uh, that's, I think, the logic uh, that governs Leviticus 16. Yeah, I, th- I like the phrase, I think, did you say liturgical theater? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great phrase because it's a way of further concretizing the metaphor, which it just, it's relatable. You know, you can feel it rather than just reading about words on a page. And that's maybe one of the defenses for liturgy. (laughs) Well, I think if I can just add one more thing, you mentioned why do they send this animal off? Well, then we have to add one more detail to the picture in the ancient Near East and certainly in the Bible. Uh, There were two ways to enter the underworld, the place at furthest remove from God. One was through the Axis Mundi. We all know that from the word Gehenna, which simply means the valley of, you know, of Gehenom in Jerusalem. The entrance to the underworld is, you know, reached, you know, via the Axis Mundi that goes through Jerusalem. Uh, Or uh, the other way of entering the underworld was at the periphery of the wilderness. 
Uh, and that's what Leviticus 16 is building on. That animal is being sent, you know, into the netherworld where uh, the furthest removed from God, as the psalmist says, to remove, you know, my sins like the east from the west, as far away as possible so that God can't, again, we have to use anthropomorphic language, he can't see it. If God sees it, he mm-hmm. gets angry. If he doesn't see it, he ignores it. Right. And just before we leave this, because we, we want to get to the other metaphor, especially debt, but can you say something more about this goat? Uh, what would you like to know about the goat? Well, anything you want to say, but I do recall, you know, this this uh, this word Azazel, right, in, in Leviticus 16, and that represents something that isn't always handled well in English translations, as I recall. Well, yeah, we get the word scapegoat from the uh, putative etymology of that word Azaz to go. The etymology is uncertain. Some people have parsed it or understood it as a uh, as a uh, representing a demon who inhabits uh, the desert world. And certain, you know, post biblical texts certainly the figure was imagined that way. But in the Bible, um, if we're looking at the evidence of the Bible, it's just we're looking into the void. There's no explanation. We're just left to guesses as to the meaning of that word and. Um, what it connotes religiously. Yes, welcome to the Bible, right? A lot of, a lot of questions aren't answered. So, Pete, Pete mentioned this debt, and so it raised the question for me of, if we, if we take a few minutes just to look at the New Testament, it's very clear that there's a sense of debt uh, uh, related to sin. But what, what accounts for that transition? Because the do, I would say the dominant metaphor, if you read through some of the older texts, seems to be sin is a burden. And we get a lot of this scapegoat, you know, uh, liturgy out of this metaphor. But at some point, it transitions to sin is a debt, and it becomes more economic. Is there any sense in which, you know, what accounts for that transition? So, that's a great question, and uh, I don't know if I can answer it fully. I can give you my guess. Not everyone mm-hmm. will accept my guess, but it's my guess. If you look, I mean, again, we have, so, sin is a burden. There are many, many metaphors for sin in the Bible. Sin is a stain, for example. Sin is a weight, and, you know, even others. Uh, sin as a debt is not very common in the Old Testament. Uh, only at the very end of the Old Testament period do we see it appear. But when we look at the Hebrew and especially the Aramaic of the Second Temple period, that is the period the few centuries before the birth of Christ, all of a sudden the word for debt becomes the standard idiom. So we're talking about both in Hebrew, well, in Hebrew itself, a major change in the language. Uh, when we move from the biblical to the post-biblical period, probably as a result of Aramaic influence. Because in Aramaic, Jewish Aramaic, as well as Christian Aramaic, if you look at the dictionary, you'll see that the standard word, the word used nine times out of ten for sin, is debt. That actually is how I came upon this project in the first place. I was reading a lot of Christian and Jewish Aramaic, And I was just amazed by uh, how the language for forgiveness changes so dramatically uh, from the Bible to the post-biblical period. You see the first intimations of this shift in uh, 2nd Isaiah and parts of Leviticus, but it's most obvious when we took a look at 2nd Temple Jewish texts like the Dead Sea Scrolls, Ben Sirah, and the like. For me, the kind of aha moment where the light bulb went off was when I was first reading the Dead Sea Scrolls 
And uh, I came across this idiom for the forgiveness of David's sin that used the Hebrew verb azav. Uh, most biblical readers are actually going to know that word from its Aramaic translation, shavak, uh, the citation of Psalm 22 on the cross, sibachtani, why have you forsaken me? That would be Hebrew azav. It means to not, it can mean to forsake, it can mean to divorce, it can also mean to not collect on a claim. And uh, this Dead Sea Scroll text was very peculiar because it was using azav with the sense of forgiveness. I knew from the sentence that's what it meant, but azav never means that in the Bible. Hmm. Uh, And so I was sitting there scratching my head, how could this be, how could this be? And then it occurred to me that, well, azav translates Aramaic shavak, That's what we have in Psalm 22, and that this is an example of what linguists would call a calc, where our uh, writer here is a bilingual individual, and he's transferring a meaning from Aramaic into Hebrew. Anyone who has spoken with someone who's bilingual will, if if you talk long enough, even if the person is a master of the other language, you'll hear mistakes. It's impossible not to make mistakes where their own language interferes with their second language. And that's essentially what was happening in, in, in Second Temple, these Second Temple texts. You could see this, the influence of spoken Hebrew, spoken Aramaic, changing the way in which authors who were trying to write in the biblical idiom were writing. Mm-hmm. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning. Residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for an Old People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. 
And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Well, is there something in the transition from burden to debt? First of all, I mean, two-part question. Give us, help us with a time frame, perhaps, if possible, to nail that down. And, you know, debt is economic, right? So, are there any economic turns in the world that might have made debt a pleasing metaphor to use that people would understand? (laughs) Yeah, I've wondered that too. Well, first of all, maybe on that topic, I've always reacted somewhat negatively to New Testament scholars, especially who want to use the economic language that Jesus employs in the gospel in a very specific economic way. I can't say that that's absolutely wrong. In interpreting any text, one can never be 100% sure of anything. Uh, But what always makes me worried or suspicious is the presumption there is that Jesus is choosing these metaphors because, you know, he's siding with the poor. He sees the oppression of Rome, so on and so forth. Now, I agree with all of that. Jesus does side with the poor. He does see the oppression of Rome. But the problem with, you know, emphasizing the importance of the debt language that way is that's the way everybody talked in his day. In other words, if there was a Roman overlord who knew Hebrew, he'd talk that way as well. That's just the language. That's just what the dictionary gives you. That's what you learn with your mother's milk. Right. So, it's just the way you talk. That goes back to what I said earlier. You know, there's metaphors that people invent to reflect, you know, their unique way of construing the world. And then there's metaphors that we just inherit as, you know, part of the language we learn. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what's happening here. Now, the origins of it, I don't know. The only exa- only answer I can perhaps give, and it's just a stab in the dark, I wouldn't uh, want to go to the bank with it, as it were. No pun intended. <laughs> um, oh, please, intended. Intend, intended. Intend, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> well, you know, the, these idioms for debt appear in the Persian period at the earliest, and that is the time in which we have the circulation of coinage for the first time. Uh, mm-hmm. Widespread utilization of coinage. Uh, so perhaps there's a relationship there. Mm-hmm. But um, even if that's its deep origin, this idiom lasts for a millennium. Uh, and it's clearly, you know, functional apart from any kind of putative economic origin. Explaining right. its origin is not going to explain, you know, the way in which it was viable uh, for so many centuries in right. Jewish and Christian texts. Okay, so before we get to some of the New Testament language, because I think it's it's really vital that we talk about the way Jesus and the atonement participates in what I might say this metaphoric world— and I use that I use that intentionally because I can't help but think of writers like Lakoff and Johnson who talk about metaphoric worlds. So in all of this discussion, we tr- we kind of think of metaphor as like I might say like a first order. Like okay, it's fine to talk about sin as a debt, but if you talk about sin as a debt, there are other things that we might say map onto that metaphor. Like. There are other things related to that metaphor that leads to other metaphors, and, and eventually you kind of construct this whole metaphoric world. And I couldn't help but think that maybe Jesus's life and death and resurrection participates in the language that people are using at the time. So, if 
if economy, coinage, and, and debt is the language that people are familiar with and using in everyday language, it seems that they would then use that language to explain Jesus' death and resurrection in that way. Is that what we see when we think of things like ransom and other ways of explaining the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection? Is it in this, they're participating in this kind of, quote, metaphoric world? No, exactly. So, one of the things I, I try to trace in the book is that it's one thing to identify the metaphor, and I learned this from Paul Ricoeur, but the metaphors give rise to a, a certain shape to a story. So, we know in the Lord's Prayer, at least in the original, the way in which the Greek reads, we ask uh, that our debts be forgiven. And both the word for sin there, which is debt in Greek, and the word for forgiveness. I mean, Raymond Brown, the great uh, New Testament scholar who knew Greek and knew Aramaic and Hebrew, remarked that this word for remitting sin in the Lord's Prayer is very peculiar. No native Greek speaker would have thought of this word as a natural word for forgiveness because what it really means is to remit a debt. So, there's the metaphor in its bald, you know, clear form. But then when we look in the New Testament, as you've just mentioned, when Jesus starts telling parables about the forgiveness of sins, he so frequently turns to images of individuals who are debtors and their relationship to creditors, like the, uh, the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. That reads like a commentary, actually, on the Lord's Prayer. An individual who's forgiven by his king won't forgive those underneath him. Well, why does Jesus choose an image like that? Well, again, here's where the Jewish evidence, I think, is very you know, useful. If you look at the Second Temple Hebrew, especially rabbinic Hebrew, the types of stories, parables that the rabbis would tell about sin and debt, they were of the same character. Uh, they were of a financial shape and idiom. And it's not because the rabbis and Jesus shared this particular and peculiar interest in uh, mercantile imagery. It's, in essence, what their native language demanded, because that's what the words for sin and forgiveness, that's, that's the world out of which they came. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, the, the, you know, the remission of sins, which is something that People say in church on a regular basis. It's just just understanding that that has behind it this this debt kind of metaphorical world, and it means something. And it's not one we necessarily participate in in our culture. Maybe we do, but not necessarily. But just even knowing that's really important. I think another thing I hear you saying, Gary, is that the language of debt is Jewish language. It's not something Correct. that's gleaned from the Greco-Roman world of, say, the influences of the you know a century or two before the time of Christ. It's something that's more deeply embedded in a Jewish way of thinking. No, that's exactly right. In fact, you know that's you know Ray Brown, but any good New Testament scholar that you will read on uh, the Lord's Prayer, they will all you know make the point that the language of this prayer would hardly make sense to, uh, you know, a, a Hellenistic individual whose uh, only, you know, way of thinking is in Greek terms. It comes out of a decidedly Semitic background. The other text that was very influential in this project of mine, it actually was a carryover from my previous book on the fall of Adam and Eve. I was very struck when I wrote that book that when you look at early Christian writers, all of the early church fathers, and, and the iconography that's, you know, 
follows from this theological thinking. The favorite text uh, of the early church to describe the atoning act of Jesus Christ is Colossians 2.14, a verse that describes the uh, atonement as God uh, erasing a bond, a Greek chirographone, or in Aramaic, a shtar chova, that is a, a deed that someone holds against you, a debt instrument that somehow uh, on the cross, Jesus rips a debt instrument uh, held against us, and that constitutes uh, the atonement. Well, I can't tell you uh, how important that verse is. In fact, when you look, try to look it up in various you know, dictionaries that will give you biblical verses and all the patristic writers that will cite that verse, you're not going to get a full catalog because this verse is so important, it actually becomes part of the native idiom of the writers themselves. So they'll use the clause without citing the verse. It's simply their language. You might want to say it's like certain Christian hymns that come out of, let's say, texts from the Apostle Paul or the Psalms, but we know the hymns so well, we've forgotten the biblical text out of which uh-huh. they you know, came from. That's the, uh, that's the kind of atmosphere, the importance, we might want to say, of Colossians 2. It's just everywhere. And why is it everywhere? That's yeah, the, why? That's, yeah. Well, the, the why is pretty easy to answer because everybody is so imbued with the notion that sin is a debt. So here you have the text that describes, you know, uh, very clearly how that, you know, debt is going to be uh, voided, voided by Christ on the cross by, you know, ripping it in two. Hi, my name is William Dusing, and I live in the suburbs of Reading, Pennsylvania, and I'm a part of the producers group at the Bible for Normal People. This podcast episode, like every episode, is brought to you by supporters on Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can be a part of this group that helps bring this important podcast to listeners everywhere. They'll also unlock a vast library of content and resources. Please consider supporting today at patreon.com slash the Bible for Normal People. You know, I've been listening to the Bible for Normal People for years now, and I must say this podcast has remained my favorite. It never fails to continue to challenge me, broaden my understanding, keep me thinking critically, and increase my appreciation and love for the Bible. Now, if you're unable to support the podcast on Patreon, that's okay. You can also help by rating and reviewing the Bible for Normal People on iTunes. Right now, let me take a moment to thank our producers group. Book Notes, Burt Crossland, Fred Fouth, Denise Howard, Wayne Bartle, Katie Komen, Roseanne Hennessy, and Scott Skiles. Thank you. The Bible for Normal People couldn't happen without your support. Now back to the podcast. Right. Um, side issue here with the Lord's Prayer. I don't know if you can help with this, but, you know, I, I know some churches say debt and debtors and others say trespasses. Is there any biblical sort of support for saying trespasses rather than debt? Well, now we're getting into a, you know, a more complicated issue and really we're kind of outside my range of expertise. And that's when, how do we carry all this material from antiquity into the present day? 
I'm not opposed to forgive us our sins, forgive us our trespasses. The problem with using debts in our own day is that people aren't going to understand it as sin. In fact, they would be like the Greeks hearing the Lord's Prayer for the first time themselves. They would be mm. puzzled that Jesus, uh, when he was translated into Greek, would express you know, himself in this fashion. And I think many people in churches today, if we were to revert to a literal translation of that prayer, would be puzzled, and maybe many of them would be offended. I think uh, when I re- mention this financial, you know, imagery frequently to uh, lay people, they um, they don't like the association of uh, money with God. <laughs> they find it uh, uh, offensive, which um, it certainly doesn't have to be. But I can see why they do. It's not uh, 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 it's not difficult to figure that out. So I, I think at some point here, it would be great to move to okay. What metaphors do we use today? But before we get there, I just, again, in the, the spirit of Pete's going off topic here, growing up, I might have heard a half dozen sermons on, you know, the real Greek root is hamartia, which is missing mm-hmm. the mark, which is, an, which is actually an archery metaphor. Right. So, how does that fit into to all this? And it just came to mind as we were talking about this, I was thinking, oh, yeah, you know, I heard about this other metaphor quite a bit, and there's been many a sermon fodder for this mm-hmm. missing the mark metaphor. How does that fit into this debt metaphor? Well, of course, that is the standard Greek word, so it's not wrong, but it's not really taking the landscape of, uh, we might want to say, the Semitic background of the New Testament, and it wouldn't understand why then isn't Jesus talking about, you know, marksmen and arrow shooters or whatever uh, every time he wants to give you a story, you know, to tell you in the most concrete fashion imaginable how sin works. Why does Jesus always turn then to financial, you know, context, or why is it then in the early church that, you know, Colossians? Colossians 2.14 is so extraordinarily important if sin is really basically this missing the mark. I think it, missing the mark is there. Just sin is sustained. There are a lot of other images for sin. I'm not denying any of those. They're all there and they all have, you know, their own significance. But my point in my book is that, you know, when we're looking at Jewish material and Jewish influenced individuals like Jesus of Nazareth. In Hebrew, in Aramaic, when you look up in the dictionary the word for sin, it's not hamartia, it's chov chova. And it's that Semitic world that you need to bear in mind. And the Greek of the New Testament is trying, you know, it's best to render that Semitic world. But the world of early Christianity, uh, certainly the of the first, you know, followers of Jesus are not, you know, uh, they're, they're not defined by the Greek lexicon. I, I just want to make sure that we pause on that point, because I think it's actually really significant that what I, what I hear you saying is we— Sure, Jesus in our New Testaments that are translated into Greek is using a Greek word, hamartia. But it's a little bit, I mean, sure, it's there maybe as a secondary, tertiary way of understanding. But we really have to think the fuller context of that metaphoric world or the language, frankly, the language that Jesus and these Semitic peoples would have been speaking. And there's some things that are just lost in translation. So, if the dominant metaphor we see throughout Jesus's ministry is sin as a debt, and we see the word hamartia, which is a Greek word, we can't just impute all of these Greek connotations there. We have to really understand, which is kind of nuanced, that Jesus is using this dominant metaphor of sin as a debt more often than not and give weight to that. 
Is, is that fair? Uh, that's certainly how I would see it. And, and for me, you know, it was what really quickened, we might want to say, in my imagination on all, all of this was my deep reading in the Syriac Church Fathers, that is, that branch of early Christianity for which Syriac was their native language, especially for the first, let's say, three to four centuries when the Syriac itself was not overly influenced by Greek. You know, the debt material uh, is extraordinary. It's it, all all the words are the same as they are in the Mishnah and Talmud. I mean, the Christians and Jews share the very same vocabulary uh, for sin and atonement. Now, I, there's not a one-to-one correspondence between Syriac and the language of Jesus. Some people, I think, you know, romantically like to say that. They want to study Syriac so they can study the language of Jesus. I'm not saying that. But I am saying this, when you read the Syriac church fathers from third and fourth centuries, you're entering into a language that retains that deep, you know, uh, debt structure to the idiom of sin that Jesus himself used. So you definitely can get a good sense, the landscape of the language for sin and atonement from attending to these spirit materials, not without nuance, mind you. I'm Mm -hmm. not saying read the church fathers and you're in first century Palestine. People do say that. That's ridiculous. (laughs) But you you are, you're closer to capturing, you might want to say, the Semitic background of Second Temple Hebrew than you are if you're only reading Greek and Latin church fathers. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so you you in your book, you tie this metaphor of debt to a couple of things. One is the atonement, which we touched on already. Maybe we'll have time to come back to that. I, I hope we do. But also to this idea of merit or credit and what mm-hmm. what Christians actually do in their lives. I mean, can, can you uh, – I just – Introduce that in a very convoluted way. Can you can you explain that? Because that's a really fascinating concept. Like acts acts of virtue are merits or credits. Which Merit right away worthy. you see the debt language in that. Right, and it's important to say a couple of things here. When I mention this frequently, especially some Protestants, perhaps especially on the Lutheran side, their their hair stands on end. I always like to say, though, you know, my colleague Joseph Orwico at Notre Dame, who works on the thought of Thomas Aquinas, wrote a very fine article on the place of good deeds in the Christian life, comparing Thomas Aquinas to John Calvin. And, you know, he could find hardly, you know, any difference between them. Both would speak very emphatically that we are saved by grace alone, but both would also say very emphatically that that grace, you know, isn't inert, that, you know, it reshapes people. There's something called sanctification of growth in the Christian life. And that's really what's, you know, the church fathers tune into here in imagining if sin is a debt, then the kind of merit-worthy practice that one can engage in to offset the deleterious effects of sin is almsgiving to the poor because it funds, as Jesus says, a treasury in heaven. Now, it's important not to get too mechanical here. Uh, It's not as though we just have a big chalkboard and I have to give away enough alms to cover the amount of debts or sins I have. It's not conceived that crudely. Almsgiving, I think, has the value it does both in early Judaism and in early Christianity because it's an act of unmerited mercy that I bestow on someone else. It has an incalculable value. 
That's why it's a treasury in heaven, not an earthly treasury. That's why it'll never rust. That's why thieves can't break in and take it. When one gives alms, you're participating in that love that God showed the world in creating it in the first place and sending his son. That's why it's so significant. In a sense, yes, it's tit for tat, debt, merit, credit, but I think it's deeper than that. I think it's these merits, these credits have the value they do because A, God gave them that value, but also they participate in God's inexhaustible mercy. Yeah, I mean, I think participate is sort of an important word because I'm looking at, I know a passage you mentioned in Daniel chapter 4, talking about I guess talking to, about Nebuchadnezzar, but right. you know, to king, redeem your sins by giving alms, and that's that's in the Bible, right? So, but it, right. it's it's not the kind of passage that at least the Protestants that I've hung around with my whole life would run to to preach a sermon on. You know, it sounds too much like you're like Jesus did it all, and you have nothing to contribute to that, but. You know, maybe, I think if I'm channeling you correctly, Gary, maybe we do have something, maybe our actions mean something, and we do have something to contribute. I think that's, you know, exactly right. I mean, St. Augustine, I think, said it best. He said, you know, uh, when Christ crowns our merits in the, at the heavenly banquet, he's simply praising his own gifts. That is what he gave to us in the first place. The example I used in my book, and I think it's as good as any, is um, the parent who gives their four or five-year-old $5 to go buy the, the other parent a Christmas present in the store. That happens in every family I know. Anyone who receives a gift from a four or five-year-old knows that they didn't earn the money to purchase that gift, but they're moved anyways because the child, by virtue of the money the father or mother has given them, they participate in the love of the family, and that's, that's important. Yeah. That's super important, and I think that's how the language of merit and credit works in Christianity is that, you know, we need to participate in this cycle of divine generosity. We can't mm-hmm. just stand there. You know, righteousness is not just imputed. It's not just forgiveness isn't just amnesty. The judge saying you're innocent and then you walk out the door. Mm -hmm. I think that really fails to capture what we might want to call the theatrics of grace to return to that image that, you know, we're pulled into onto a stage. Uh, into a world that we've now re-understood by virtue of the grace of Christ as animated by this unfathomable love. And uh, we start giving away our money as almsgivers, sometimes in a reckless fashion, because we're trying to mirror, imitate, participate in the reckless love that God has shown towards us. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, okay, and, and you know, just I mean, we're 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 getting close to sort of our time. We we want to be respectful of your time too, but um, but something I, I read in the book that just fascinated me, and I want to make sure I asked you about this was how Jesus is depicted on the cross in iconography. Define what iconography is. Oh, just. Stuff that has Jesus on it and, and other kinds of holy things. <laughs> it's just there is a Art. word that maybe people wouldn't understand, <laughs> yeah. like pictures yeah. Yeah, and pi- pic- things throughout church history. Ho- holy relics, right. holy things like that of drawings and paintings and things. But So, um, I, I think, it, it, again, I'm going to try to riff a little bit, but break in anytime you want to and stop me. In traditions that emphasize the debt metaphor, you might see Jesus – you might emphasize Jesus' suffering on a depiction of Jesus on the cross. 
in other traditions, and I think you mentioned the Syriac tradition, the the image of Jesus is very, very different. That could you could you talk about that? Because I find that absolutely fascinating how different traditions emphasize different things talking about Jesus and the cross. Well, what I, you know, really learned as I, you know, dived into this subject, I finally understood one of the most popular books of the 20th century on the atonement, uh, Gustav Aulin's Christus Victor. I don't think you could find a theologian worth his salt who doesn't, you know, does not, not only doesn't own that book, but the book would be dog-eared. Mm-hmm. Maybe in the last generation, it's not read as much, but when I was in divinity school if you at Duke, if you went down into the stacks, you would have seen 10 or 15 copies of it. I, uh, I always like to go and look at what books the library owns multiple copies of because that's a good indication of their yeah. importance. It's like it's a good it's a good tip for people. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it, it it really tells you something. But so, what does Gustav Aline talk about in Christus Victor? Well, Christ is the victor over Satan, and again, it's uh, it is a plot line. Uh, Satan's trying to figure out, you know, who Christ is and whether Christ falls under the terms of the bond that he holds, going back to Colossians 2.14. If Christ is a man, uh, then as a result of the fall, Satan can justly take him. If he's not a man, he can't take him. So according to this, you know, theory of the atonement, uh, Satan is trying to figure out during Jesus' earthly life whether he's a man or a god on the cross when he sees him, you know, utter the cry of dereliction. He figures he's got him, he takes him, and of course, then he's in for a big surprise. Then Christ can affect the atonement, redeem us from our sins. How? Because Satan, who held that bond, has now overreached. He's violated the terms of that bond, and so God can now justly clear everybody out of hell by virtue of Christ's work. So, it's a beautiful image, uh, Mm -hmm. I think. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily want to recreate it for our own day, but I certainly appreciate in its own, uh, and it certainly was, let's say, for the first thousand years of Christianity, uh, one of the most popular, widely influential, you know, uh, depictions of the atonement you could find. Yeah, so it's not emphasizing the suffering of Jesus to for peace, to not not no. so much to peace, but to pay. Oh, okay. You know, tying it into the debt metaphor, but it is the the, the emphasis is on Jesus's victory over the devil and over death. Right, because right. Okay. the devil, the devil, you know, many church fathers made this made this point that he had a legitimate claim on the human race. In other words, God issued a commandment vis-a-vis the tree of good and evil that had a penalty attached to it that Adam and Eve voided. And, you know, because God is just, he can't just say that doesn't matter. It matters. Satan is the one who is appointed to, you know, kind of like Satan and Job to oversee the execution of the justice that, you know, God looks like he's responsible for. But here's what's, I think, really beautiful about the whole image. God has to somehow justly deprive Satan of his rights. And that's how the Christus Victor model then emerges, is Satan has a bond. He extracts the price of sin by way of our death, but he has no rights to take, you know, the Son of God who hasn't sinned. 
He takes him. That's Christ dying on our behalf. You know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. All of that stuff, you know, neatly applies here. But so does God's justice. In other words, God isn't violating his justice in uh, forgiving sins, but he's, you know, uh, in a sense, vacating Satan of the rights he has over us. Right. So, so final question here. With all of these metaphoric worlds and metaphors we use for sin— what are the implications for today? Is it appropriate to adopt new metaphors that make use of the language we have today? And what are some of the common ones or maybe ones that you feel most comfortable with that are faithful to that tradition, but also capture our way of talking today? Well, if I go back to the very theme I began with of thing, sin is a thing and something that's durable, something that lasts over time. You think of a stain, how difficult it is, sometimes impossible to remove a stain from a piece of clothing. I think that's deep in the Bible's sensibility. It's reflected, you know, in statements we have, for example, in the Ten Commandments, that God visits the sins of the fathers and the sons uh, and the grandsons. There's something durable, lasting about sin. It's serious. Sometimes Bible readers take offense at that imagery. In the courses I teach at Notre Dame, I always use the lines from uh, Barack Obama when he was first running for president, but before he was president, and he referred in an address in Philadelphia to what he called the original sin of slavery or the original stain of slavery, the stain of sin. I can't remember exactly what he used, but his point was well taken. He didn't always use religious vocabulary, but he used it here. Why? Because religious vocabulary was uniquely capable of conveying a sense of human wrongdoing that has a reach that stretches over centuries. And certainly over the last few weeks, I think all of us, if anyone has the, even a modicum of interest in the news, we can see that the effects of slavery are very much with us today, that it is a stain, it's a debt. There's a kind of thingness to the grave wrong that's been done that will take some time and some effort to undo. I think the Bible was very attentive to the character of grave social evils like that. And one of the reasons why it, you know, takes the ordering of the body politics so seriously, because when people screw up at that, you know, level of behavior, the consequences, you know, not are, are not only grave immediately, but they're grave for a long time. Hey, Gary, thank you so much for talking with us about sin, and I think we could just keep going down this rabbit hole for a long time. Uh, but in the interest of time, is there, is there any places where people can learn more about this uh, world of, of sin and metaphor and maybe be in touch with you about that, ask questions, or where can people find you? Well, they certainly can find my books, and if they wish to find me, the best way to do it uh, is via email. I don't have a web page, I'm sorry to say, but I'm easily locatable if you search for my name at the Notre Dame website or Anderson.194, if you can remember that, at nd.edu. And if you mentioned that you heard me on this podcast, I'll be happy to entertain any question you might send me. That's great. So, I have a few more questions. So, if I email those to you, you'll, you'll respond. You'll be okay with that? Yeah. Or just show up at your house. Where do you live? <laughs> I mean, we won't we'll, tell anybody. We promise. We'll put your physical address in, in the show notes. So, if anyone actually goes searching for it, they'll be no, fine. No, we wouldn't so. do that. We're nice people. So yeah. <laughs> th thank you so much for, for being on, Gary. Really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. See you, Gary. Bye-bye. 
Hey, folks, thanks for listening to another episode. Hope you got a lot out of this. We certainly did. Hey, one big announcement. You don't even need this announcement because I know you think about this every day. It's on your mind, and it occupies your thoughts from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed. But Jared has a book coming out in about a month, right? What's the name of the book? How the Bible actually works? Oh, no, wait, that's my book. Sorry. I did it again. I keep bringing myself into this. It's always about me. Go ahead, Jared. It's called about you. Love Matters More. Love matters more, which is why I keep forgiving Pete for bringing himself into the center of things. How fighting to be right keeps us from loving like Jesus. I would really appreciate your support. If you could go to lovemattersmorebook.com, you can pre-order it, and that gives us a real boost as we uh, head into this uh, launch season with the book. So again, if you could, it's called Love Matters More. You can find it on lovemattersmorebook.com, or just go to wherever you would normally buy your book. You'll find it. Just search for it. Again, really appreciate your support. And if you're really inclined, you can leave an Amazon review, oh, yeah. which goes a long ways. Really appreciate it. Yeah. All right, folks. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. See ya. Thanks as always to our team. Producer Megan Kamick, audio engineer Dave Gerhardt, creative director Tessa Stoltz, marketing and administration Reed Lively, and transcriptionist Stephanie Spate. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening. Okay, and now the outro. Outro. Hold on, Dave. What are we... I have it on my list, Dave, that by season five, I will have this printed out so that every time I don't have to pause and pull up the roster and see what we're promoting. Okay? This is fall, right? Okay. So, get off my back, Pete. Oh, gosh. Dave. I'm tired, Dave. I'm so tired. Jeez. Guys are always on me.